This is a Triple J podcast. He's back. Yes, Dr. Carl, back on your science hour and ready to answer your questions. A big thank you to everyone who filled in over the last few weeks. This week, we get into why we need saliva. We chat how antibiotics work and Dr. Carl reveals a fact that makes me not want to sleep in hotel sheets ever again. You'll find that out later. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's do this. I am so glad to have this man back in the studio with me, Dr. Carl. Welcome back. Hello. So fabulous to be back again here where the weather is normal. Talk to me. Well, um, you know how the weather can change fairly rapidly? Uh, I had this experience heading down into Antarctica on the West Antarctic Peninsula where there was sunlight so bright I had to wear sunglasses and then it turned into snow and hail and then back into sunlight and this cycle of sunlight, snow and hail repeated five times in half an hour. I, I have never, ever seen it change that much. It was just astonishing. And then on another occasion, we were trying to land at an Antarctic beach. And between us and the shore, 50 metres away, the water was almost li- literally, okay, it was metaphorically, I know the difference, uh, it was boiling with young penguins and young fur seals jumping out of the water. And we couldn't run over them because of the nanny state and the whole commie lefty thing where you're not allowed to run over innocent animals anymore. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. Not like the good old days where they killed three million seals. What? With clubs <gasps> in, in uh, about three years. They, they practically wiped out the seals. So, and then on another occasion, we actually saw... A leopard seal, this is a bit gory here, so you might not want to have the kids listening to it. A leopard seal killing a penguin and turning the skin inside out. Oh! I told you it was gory. Oh, my gosh. So they grab the penguin by the neck and they sort of thrash it backwards and forwards and then it tears loose and then the skin sort of peels off with the feathers. And I don't quite understand why because they can munch their way through the flesh and the bone. So what's the problem with eating through feathers? I don't know. So they just leave, they, they munch their way through. And then later we saw from the deck of the ship, we saw what looked like a giant jelly blubber. But when I zoomed in on it, it was actually an inside-out skin of a penguin <gasps> with little flippers hanging off it. That was oh. a bit cool. I'm sorry. But it was very nice apart from that. That's crazy. Yeah, so I tell know. me, so you went, you started off in Mexico, right? No, we, we, you go Sydney to Santiago, then Buenos Aires, and then you go south. And for me, you get to the tip of South America. Did you know that South America is not solid? No. Like I used to think that you start off the equator and it sort of bulges out and then you go down to the pointy bit Cape Horn and it's sold all the way and you can walk. No, it's actually three, a couple of separate islands, big ones. Uh, and, and there's th- three major channels going across. There's the um, Magellan Passage, which Magellan took in the 1500s, and then there's the Beagle Passage and, and something else. So you, you, anyway, you get down to the tip of South America to a place called Ushuaia and then you jump onto a ship and then you go down into the west. Antarctic Peninsula, where there's all those bad things happening with the melting, and then went to Elephant Island, where Shackleton did his thing. Read up Shackleton, amazing story. Mm-hmm. And then South Georgia, where yeah, over a period of years, three years, they killed three million seals by hand. It was really brutal. Yeah. So there were these people called sealers who were providing seal fur to Europe and America. And it was a terrific fur, but really it belonged to the seals, not on human beings. Mm. And the technique was 
they would brutalise the people who would do the work, the sailors, by putting them ashore with minimal supplies and say, okay, find a cave, get some food, see you later, we'll pick you up in six months. And then they would start at one end of the beach and club the seals to death and work their way to the other end of the beach and do this for maybe three months continuously, throwing away the flesh and just getting the fur. And we just about wiped out the seals, but they're coming back because there were a few out at sea that managed to survive. Yeah. So it sounds like you learned a lot. What were some of the highlights of the trip for you? Um, There were those things and also just sort of experiencing the cold and the hot. And then Mexico, do you know that in Mexico they had pyramids as big as the Egyptian pyramids and yet the people who built them vanished? What? Yeah, so my Mexico, my knowledge of Mexico was nothing, mm. right? Uh, I, I thought I knew that there were Mayans there and Aztecs and, mate, there were only two of the, at least 50 groups, like the, the Teotihuacan and the uh, Mixtec and a whole bunch of other people I can't remember. And these people lived in Mexico and they invented corn. They got grass and genetically engineered it and turned it into big clumpy things of corn. And between 100 BC and 600 AD, a bunch of people called the Teotihuacan or Teotihuacan, they built these enormous pyramids, some of which were demolished by the Spaniards, um, and then vanished. And then around the 1300s, the Aztecs turned up. So there were all these people in Mexico, amazing place. I never had any idea of what to experience. But I'll tell you one thing nice about coming home. Mm. Mate, you don't have to cut the air with a knife. Like all the way through South America, North America, Los Angeles, Mexico, mate, you can't see the horizon. You go to look at the horizon and you look for the sun and it's just buried in smog. <gasps> Come back to Australia, clean air. Clear. Like, I can't believe it. Like the air is clean and, and the sky's not yellow. It's sort of blue, not, yeah. not yellowy blue. I love Australia for that. Did you get to relax at all? Did you have a... Yeah, there was a lot of relaxing and a lot of thinking and having fun with the family and just doing nothing and recharging the batteries. Oh, and that's what you needed, Carl. I'm so and, proud of and, you for doing and, it. And, and I heard that uh, Zoe and Naomi went gangbusters. Yeah. Oh, my God. How fabulous. We had a great time. So we had a bunch of people stepping in, Bianca Negrady, Bianca. David Wackenfeld, we had Naomi Kabelik and Zoe Keane. So if oh. you want to check out those episodes, you can do so via the podcast feed. They were stoked to jump in for you, Dr. Carl. But and they course, sounded terrific. Yeah. Like, I, I had no idea beforehand, but um, what was the lady again you mentioned from the Blue Mountains? Um, Bianca Negrady. She writes for Nature magazine, mm. the world's most prestigious science magazine. She rocks. And Zoe does a whole lot of stuff and so do Naomi. Oh, my God, I was so thrilled to be able to get out of the way and let them shine and yeah. do good stuff. He's back with you in the studio answering our science questions. And, Carl, we got Susie from Melbourne to kick us off. Susie, tell us, what's going Hi, on Dr. in your Carl. world? Hi, Dr. Susie, Hi, welcome. Hello. Um, I just wanted to know, um, I've developed Sjogren's Syndrome and um, I was just wondering, and basically I have no tears and hardly any saliva. Um, it's really unbearable to live with. I was just wondering, uh, can it be reversed and does it get passed down to my children? I don't know whether it can be passed on to your children. I'd have to look it up. Uh, can it be reversed? Yes, in the sense that, following the motto of the United States Air Force, with enough energy, a pig will fly. So we had the case of many people around the world where something happens to their pancreas, they can no longer make insulin, and it used to be 
that the only thing that they could do was inject themselves with penicillin, sorry, with insulin several times a day and monitoring their levels. And last November, we reversed this. There's an article about it in the New York Times by Gina Colada, K-O-L-A-D-A. So look up New York Times, Gina Colada, K-O-L-A-D-A and insulin. And what they did was reverse engineered genetically his pancreas and the DNA still had the information of how to make insulin. It was still there in the DNA, but it had been destroyed and they rebuilt it. And what it took was 15 people, 20 years, a place for them to work for 20 years and 51 US million dollars. And now he doesn't have to inject himself with insulin. Now, this is the very first time we've done this. And it was done in November. It was reported in November last year. And it will get cheaper and faster, blah, 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 blah. And it'll become commonplace. Yep. In the same way, we need to follow the example of with enough energy, a pig will apply and apply that same amount of money and time and science to dealing with the consequences of Sjogren's syndrome, which from memory is an autoimmune disease where your immune system has knocked off different parts of your DNA and we can reverse engineer it back, but it means $50 million, uh, 15 people, 20 years. But we can do it faster the next time around. So there is hope on the horizon and it all depends on how much money we throw at it. Oh, hope so. That would be amazing if we could. Are you taking the tears, the artificial tears? Does that help? Uh, Yeah, it just gets a bit irritating after a while. Um, artificial saliva, artificial tears. Um, is, it, is it a common thing? I heard it's more common in women than men. Unfortunately, most autoimmune diseases are more common in women, especially if they've ever been pregnant. So without invading your privacy, uh, the reason is this. When a woman carries a baby in her tummy, that baby is half her DNA, which is no problem but half the father's DNA, and that DNA can escape. And sometimes it sets off autoimmune reactions. That is part of the thinking, a small part, of why women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases. But there are other factors as well. Mm. Um, I actually noticed it more after I had my children. So, ah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Susie, question. I realised that I couldn't cry when I was sad, and I was like, hang on a minute, what the hell is that? Okay. That was going to be my next question. I wanted to know, you know, do you still cry? You know, no, even the bodily the, response of crying? Yeah, I have the sensation, but it's, it can be frustrating. Um, yeah, you can't let out that emotion fully. Wow. So, yeah, it's really hard to sometimes communicate with people. I, I guess, yeah, sometimes you do communicate through tears and, yeah, it's just, yeah, it can be, it affects my whole body, my whole yeah, emotional uh, well-being as well. Sure, and yeah. especially with saliva. Saliva is incredibly important. Uh-huh. And one thing about saliva is that you make about one and a half litres per day. And superficially, it has just a straightforward function of helping the food slide down. But it turns out that every single hormone that you make, which includes estrogen, progesterone, insulin, testosterone, etc., tiny amounts are manufactured and appear in your mouth and we don't know why. So you're missing out on a whole lot of stuff when you take the artificial saliva because it can't man- it can't mimic what is dynamically manufactured by your body yeah, in real time. Yeah, it's affecting time. my teeth. Yeah, it's affecting uh, my teeth as well fully. 
Yeah. Oh, there's been some money on signs. Oh, my, what happened? Or? Uh, well, no, it's, I'm in the process. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's just affecting, um, yeah, it's just creating cavities. Oh, my God. Susie, yeah. thanks Susie, so much for sharing your story, but Thank hopefully... You. Thanks so much. Yeah, hopefully we get a fix soon. We've got Hayden in Geelong here. Hayden, you got a question about napping. Yeah, how are you? Good. Very well, thank you, Dr. Hayden. Um, I just wanted to ask the question of why some people nap really well while others nap pretty poorly. Because personally, I go for a nap for an hour or two. I wake up. I don't feel so great. My wife does the same thing, and she wakes up feeling a million dollars. Um, you need to ch- – ha- first question, is your normal sleep okay at night and you wake up in the morning feeling rested? Because some people don't. Uh, not often, no, actually. What, you don't usually wake up feeling rested? No. Okay. Uh, what you probably do, need to do, if I, I would if I was in your circumstance, I'd go to see your GP, mention it to them, and then get referred to a sleep laboratory. There's half a dozen major cities in Australia, and each one has a sleep laboratory, maybe two. Okay. There's yep. not many in the country areas. It's a bit of a shame. As we, we need to accommodate that. We'll talk about that another time. And you, what you might find is that you're having bad sleep at night and then that's following on onto your napping. But se- separately from that, um, with napping, some people find that they can do really well with a 20-minute sleep and then wake up and they feel like a million bucks. So what you can try in the short term is having an alarm and try, I'm going to have a nap in the afternoon, and a nap is good. It's not just a nanny nap, as they say in a rather chauvinistic way. It's good for everybody. We used to do it before our society gave us coffee and kept us awake so we could work harder for the man, booze the patriarchy. Tea. Tea, right, mm. and tea. So, um, <laughs> so try a 20-minute nap, a 30-minute nap, and a 40-minute nap, and you might find that one of those leaves you feeling better because you might end up going so deep into the sleep cycle that you're dragging yourself back from deep sleep before you've had a chance to come up into the lighter sleep. So try no, the different time sense. periods. But read up on this. The world expert is Sizzler. C- I can't remember. Thomas Sizzler at, at a university in Boston. C-Z-S-L-I-R something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Try different combinations. But, but he's, he's the world expert on sleep. And try emailing them and let us know what you find. No, no problem. I will. Thank you very much, doctors. Thanks, Aiden. We've got Max from Ballarat. Dr. Max, Max what's your question? Um, I'm just wondering, so if you had two perfect spheres, um, one the size of the moon and one the size of a golf ball, um, if you sat them down both on a perfectly flat surface, would they both have the same point of contact? If they were perfect spheres and you use the word perfect and now you're into the world that's not real. So I've seen a problem in physics that starts off, assume a spherical cow (laughs) and then you go on from there, right? (laughs) So if you're assuming a perfect sphere, perfect might mean that it does not deform at all. So all you've got is a microscopic point of contact that is maybe one atom wide. And so whether they're sitting on each other or sitting on a hard surface, it's the same. They do not deform because you use that word perfect. So there should be only single point contact, but of course nothing is perfect in our universe. So therefore you'll find a little bit of deformation and you'll find maybe contact of a million atoms or 100 million atoms, maybe a millimetre wide, 10 millimetre wide, depending on how the weight is and the structural integrity of the objects. Yeah, yeah, right. No, that that clears it up a lot. So thanks for that. Sorry, a bit of a wussy answer on my part there, Dr. 
Sorry, Dr. So Hicks. hang on. Two perfect spheres. One of them's large, one of them's small. Yep. The point of yep. contact where they touch... Is virtually zero. It's, it's, uh, it's one single atom. Yeah. But the moment that you get into the real world, things deform and bend. And steel is yeah. actually really elastic. Steel is more elastic than rubber. And if you get a steel ball and bounce it on a sheet of steel, it'll jump higher than bouncing a rubber ball on hard wood. So what steel if, is elastic. So, what if you, so are we imagining a basketball and a tennis ball, for instance? Once again, you should still have, a, if they're perfect and they're totally rigid and they're not elastic at all, you should get only atom-to-atom contact at one point. Oh. Only, only. So st- but the, things, the atoms never touch because the atoms have electrons on the outside and the electrons are negatively charged, so they repel each other. So they're almost touching but not quite. Okay. Max, does that clear it up for you? Yeah, no, that clears it up. We've had it, I've been having a few debates with a lot of different mates <laughs> and... Um, yeah, no, nah, it's clear it right out, so thanks for that. <laughs> if yeah. you are currently having a debate with someone at work, your crew, 0439757555, get in touch. We've got Peter in Canberra here. Peter, you've got a question about taste. Yeah, I was just wondering, do we get our taste from our brain or our taste buds, and does food taste different for everyone? Ah, there's a wonderful movie where they go around blowing up uh, stars uh, I forget the name of the movie. It'll come back to me in a minute. And they have an intelligent bomb that they load up, uh, they send out to blow up stars, and the bomb gets stuck and starts having an argument with them about whether it should blow up now and kill them or blow up the star instead. And then the, the bomb, the intelligent bomb says, but look, everything that I know, I know only through my senses, so you could be lying to me about everything and I could be actually a brain in a bucket, which is true. So the, you get your answer here from Frank Zappa which says that your brain is your main sexual organ. And what he's saying is that everything that you experience, you experience through your brain and there's just sensors that come in. Now, when we're getting into taste, we then cut into the old TikTok question of can your testicles taste soy sauce? Mm. And so this is based on an article way back in 2013 where some scientists were looking at taste and they realised that there's two things going on. Firstly... All of your cells have sort of taste receptors. So they can taste, for example, how much salt there is in the environment, how much potassium, and they can adjust what they do to keep that right. But you only have taste buds in your mouth. You don't have taste buds on your testicles or anywhere else except in your mouth. And there you have these taste receptors joined to these things called taste buds. And apparently there's five of them. There's What are they? Sweet and solid, sour and umami and acid or something. Anyway, there's five of them. And then and, and, and they send signals up to your brain and they say, okay, you're tasting something sweet or sour or that umami thing. And then you register the taste. But what you like depends on your conditioning. So firstly, it's the taste buds in your mouth. But secondly, if you were brought up in India, if you were grown in India inside your mother's tummy and your mother had lots of curry, you would wake up having a preference. You would come into the world with a slight preference for curry-flavoured milk. So it's affected by things that happen to you before you're born and then after you're born. And so then you go down that pathway of liking certain flavours or not. Uh, We were able, my my wife and I, to 
con our kids into thinking that the most beautiful food was um, broccoli. And they asked, <laughs> could we have broccoli with special sauce, which was a soy sauce with a bit of salt in it and umami. And um, people were astonished that our kids loved, begged to eat broccoli because <laughs> we tricked them oh, into wow. it. They forgave us. Jake in Brizzy, what do you want to know? Hey, doctors, um, I would like to know um, if clouds collect water that have been evaporated by the sun, uh, how do clouds in areas such as the UK, where it's overcast and it rains more often, um, how do they collect water to rain so often? Ah, so the oceans have the sun shining on them, dumping about a kilowatt of power per square metre when the sun is directly overhead. This then evaporates the oceans, the water, and then the water rises. We lose about a metre of ocean each year in terms of the water rising and evaporating going into the clouds. The clouds then get pushed by the winds, so the hot air rises and then colder air comes to replace it and then it's then part of the wind and then the earth rotates and then look up Coriolis' effect on Wikipedia. So you end up with clouds over land that have travelled there from the oceans. Now, another important source of water vapour for clouds is the actual forests. And so forests make water. They put water into the air. And part of the problem is that if you chop down your forest, you end up with creating a bit of a desert where suddenly there used to be clouds and now there aren't any. So what was the next... Now we've given that background, Dr. Jake. What exactly are you asking? Um, well, it, it, it kind of does answer my question. So the water doesn't get evaporated um, by the, the land... Uh, water and go straight up, stay there. Um, it and can, but mo- you're right. Most of it comes from the oceans, so it comes from the trees, but also from the oceans. And I was reading an article in Science last week about how apparently the trees can make wind, not by waving, but by putting water vapour into the air. So the most of the – because the earth is 70% ocean, 70% water, we got the wrong name for it. Right, it should really be called planet water, not planet Earth. But so, because it's seventy percent water, that's where most of the cloud comes from from the water. But you were saying before I interrupted you, you were saying something else there. Um, I was just saying you kind of answered my question because okay. you were saying that the clouds kind of stay there, the Earth moves, and the the clouds kind of land uh, where the, where the air is. But how how do they always form in in areas su- such as the UK? Like, why is it always more ah. uh, rainy over there and overcast um, than, than it is here in Australia? Than well, it is here in Australia. Don't know. Um, well, you need to look up on Wikipedia. There's an air circulation. of. Um, so what happens is the air rises at the equator and then goes vertically up into the sky and then splits north and south. And okay. it goes about 20 degrees north and 20 degrees south, and then falls down. As it rises up, the temperature drops and the water molecules coalesce into clouds and the clouds stay at the tropics, the air keeps on going and then dry air falls down at 20 degrees north and south and that's where you have most of the deserts on the world at 20 degrees north and south of the equator. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And look up Hadley cells. Then the air flows towards the pole and then rises up again and there are about three or four Hadley cells between the equator and the North Pole and the equator and the South Pole. So you get these 
different bands of uh, climate and then you tie on that with the rotation of the earth. So if you're looking, say, in the United Kingdom, they're about 40 degrees north. So with them, the Hadley cell is such that you're getting the weather coming from the west to the east. So it's coming from across the Atlantic Ocean onto the United Kingdom and then onto Europe. And that is part of the reason it's more cloudy. I'm out of my depth here. Need to talk to a meteorologist. I've, I've sort of run out of knowledge, Jake. I've, I've failed you. Sorry, Dr. Jake. No. That, that, that's fine. So, so UK kind of just lands in the way of these the, kind of Hadley cells kind of. Yeah. And so you've got the circulation happening in Perth as well. So it goes from Perth across to Coffs Harbour uh, and, and plus or minus a bit north and south. And so you're getting the weather pattern going from west to east, both here in Australia in the more southern parts and in uh, the UK as well. We've got Declan in Forest Lodge. Dr. Declan, you've got a question about plants. Hi, doctors. Um, I've got a question about C3 and C4 plants. I occasionally read things and I see it come up and get thrown around. What's the difference between a C3 and a C4 plant? Um, Plants take in carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide has got one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. And so the... A plant sucks in the carbon dioxide and then via its roots, it also sucks in water, H2O. So it grabs the water and breaks that water down into hydrogen and oxygen via the process called photosynthesis and then it makes carbohydrates. The plant makes carbohydrates. The carbon and oxygen from the carbon dioxide they get incorporated into the carbohydrate and the hydrogen gets incorporated from the water. And then the oxygen gets from the water gets thrown off for us to breathe. So the plant makes carbohydrates and it starts off by making chains of carbon atoms. If it makes three carbon atoms as a first step, so it gets a carbon and a carbon and a carbon, it's called a three carbon, uh, it's called a C3 plant. And that accounts for most of the food that we eat. So it goes down that particular photosynthetic pathway. The other pathway is that the first major molecule it makes has four carbon atoms and that's called a C4. And there are various advantages to one versus the other. And they're trying to genetically engineer plants so that they make more carbohydrates. So this is a big field of research at the moment. Is that kind of a sort of thumbnail sketch beginner to C3 and C4 plants? Yeah. That's good. Okay. Hell yeah. Thank you. We've got and Jessica from Jessica, Gula Jessica. here. Well, Jessica, you got a question about cleaning. You know we love this. <laughs> hey, doctors. Yeah, so I'm a cleaner and I do a lot of the work in laundry. I mean, work with like, white towels and hand towels and face washes and all that. And I do a lot of bleaching. So I pull them out on a bench and I might notice there's a couple of like minor marks. And I'll put the bleach on and sometimes those marks will suddenly pop with colour. Wow. It's usually like yellow or like an orangey yellow. Sometimes it'll be red. Wow. And yeah, we, we're wondering what it is. So with our theories so far are like deodorant, sunscreen, makeup maybe, and possibly glow sticks. Oh, my God. Wow. So um, we've had clothes for a long time. Uh, we had to have clothes because we lost our body hair. Our brains got bigger. We needed clothes. So the first bleaching, 
of cleaning of your clothes, which is to wash it in the water and leave it out in the sun. Then we started getting dilute alkali and dilute acid, and the acid was actually from sour milk, you know, lactic acid. And then we moved around the uh, 1700s into chlorine-based bleaches as we started understanding chemistry. And then finally we moved into hydrogen peroxide. And all of these are called bleaches. And now we have other chemicals which are way more industrially powerful, you know, military industrial strength, and they are using a different chemistry. So the thing is that they're trying to set off reactions that will make the chemicals in the stain uh, get broken down. So are you guys generally using chlorine-based bleaches or...? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Just you're chlorine. using hydrogen, not, not hydrogen peroxide? Uh, not usually, no. Okay. At this stage, I have to then stop and say, where is Professor Alice Motion? Mm. And she is a professor of chemistry and she would be able to say, okay, now if you've got red wine or if you've got an, uh, a turmeric stain or saffron or – and she'd be able to go through and tell you what – chemicals it gets broken down to and then which of those have got colours, mm. right? So mm. what's happening is you're breaking it down into smaller chemicals which have colours and they're usually water-soluble rather than fat-soluble so they'll let go of the fabric. I don't know the names. Professor Alice Motion, where are you? We need you, <laughs> Professor Darling Alice Motion. Oh, Sorry, I've, I've failed you there, Dr Jessica. I haven't given you the full answer. You know what, Jessica, maybe we can yeah. revisit this if ever we have Alice on again. Oh, yes. Alice Rock. Absolutely. We're, look, it's a debate through all the cleaners at my work trying to figure out what what is doing this to the to the sheets and that. So ah, now, so do you work uh, at home or industrially not in the hotels? Um, it's a, like a school camp destination and we clean up after lots of kids and stuff. Ah, because I did a story on how often you should clean your sheets and your uh, pillowcases and I was surprised to discover, but this is general knowledge, that sperm stains on sheets will survive six washings through the hotel military industrial grade washing machines and you can still pick oh. up DNA after six washings. No. I know. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but unless, of course, do you, unless you were doing it, Jessica, in which case it would be gone after one because you're so much better. Yeah. Oh, abs- um, yeah. And the amount of bleach I put on some things, honestly. Yeah. Jessica, you're the best. But we, the stains are only ever raspberry jam or chocolate, or apple juice. We never see anything else. Sneaky (laughs) school camp treats. Yeah, We've got Jeremy here from Leeton. Jeremy, you got a question about antibiotics? Hi, yes. Um, So my question was, um, what do antibiotics do? Like how do they fight the infections? The very first, okay, what they've got to do is attack some part of the life cycle that doesn't happen in us humans that does not happen in us humans. So bacteria have a cell membrane like all of our cells have, but they also have a cell wall, which is a different structure that gives it structural integrity. And they need that because they live by themselves. One bacteria lives by itself. Occasionally they'll form into groups, but usually they live by themselves. And so the very first antibiotic, penicillin, looked remarkably similar to one of the chemicals that they use to make their cell wall. So the bacteria is making a copy of itself. It might be something like Staphylococcus aureus or something like that. And it's reaching out in the environment, trying to find chemicals to make the cell wall as it splits from one into two. And it finds some penicillin, which looks pretty close 
but not quite, but it's good enough and it incorporates it into the cell wall and only when the cell wall is fully built does the penicillin then collapse. So that then kills that bacterium. And that's just one of the many ways. Then they go through different forms of metabolism. So, for example, they might you might have heard of DNA and thymine. And there's a chemical, there's an enzyme in the human body called thymidine kinase. And some bacteria have a slightly different form of thymidine kinase, which the antibiotic will attack. So with regard to the new antibiotics, they look at the whole life cycle going right down to the DNA and they find somewhere that is where the bacterium uses a different pathway from what our human flesh does. And that's where they kick into action and they hopefully kill the bacteria. And they make a world difference. Like it used to be before the 1940s, that if an older person got pneumonia, very simple, they died. Mm. Yeah, pneumonia, the old person's friend. And suddenly, antibiotics just changed that. In my case, I have had f- three cases of a disease, a condition called cellulitis, usually working as a car mechanic or a labourer, where you get a fast-spreading infection in your flesh on the skin of your arm or your leg. And as a medical doctor, what you do is you get your texture colour and you mark it and you, t- and, and you write down time and you come back and you see how fast it's spreading and you give them the industrial-grade antibiotics. Without antibiotics, what happens with cellulitis is either amputation or death. And I'd be either dead or missing three of my four limbs, but because of antibiotics, I've got all four of my limbs. Hooray for antibiotics. I love antibiotics. Does that kind of help there, Dr. Jeremy? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. We've gotten a couple of follow-ups as well. John on Darawal Country saying, download Earthwind Null Earth to see wind patterns for cloud movement, that question earlier. But also Georgie from Ivanhoe saying, I always thought that when you bleach a dark stain, the bright colours that come out of it are just lighter versions of those colours that make up black. Like if you accidentally splatter bleach on black clothes, it tends to turn red or orange. That's part of it. And then there's also different chemicals that have completely different colours. Both are true. Zach in Tweed Heads. Zach, what do you got? Hey, Legends. How are you going today? Oh, legends. Oh, Zach, you're so Isn't sweet, Dr. Nice? Zach. Thank you. Thank you. You're so kind. Oh, I love listening to your show. Anyway, um, I've got this question. Or I guess I'm asking if there's a theory about this. I've mm-hmm. often wondered, like, flies seem to be able to wait to the last millisecond before they move, mm. and their hearts obviously beat a lot faster than ours. Do you think their perception of time would be different to ours, so we'd be moving in slow motion? And the other way around, like a turtle who has a slower heart rate lives longer, but they tend to sort of react slower. So maybe is um, time perception based on how fast the animal, how fast its heart goes and how fast it thinks? Uh, Yes and no, that's part of it. But think about an eagle. An eagle flies really quickly. Now let me introduce you to the uh, concept of flicker fusion rate, which I've mentioned before. If I show you one picture and then a second later show another slightly different picture, you think there's two separate pictures. But if I show you 10 pictures quickly in one second, you'll see it flickering. Mm. If I show you 25... You blur them, you fuse them, and that's called the flicker fusion rate. And depending on the type of image and how bright it is and whether you're looking at the centre of the eye or the side, uh, your flicker fusion rate's around 20. For an eagle, it's 70. Wow. 
So if an eagle were to look at a movie that we watch, you know, maybe 50, 25 frames a second, maybe 50, you'd go, oh, mate, this is just flickering. This is terrible. And it has that faster flicker fusion rate. So as it dives on its prey because it's a raptor-type bird with a hooked beak and rather aggressive, it can see sudden changes. Now, I know the number for an eagle. I do not know the flicker fusion rate for a fly. I'm sure somebody has done the experiment. It'd be there in Google search. But I'm guessing because of their observability to observe, to, to, to avoid my fast-moving hand or fly swatter, I reckon they've got a higher flicker fusion rate. But notice that's an I reckon I don't know the exact number. So I've kind of failed you there. I'm sorry, Dr. Zach. Oh, it's okay. It's just something I've always sort of wondered. If, you know, a fly could live a full life like 100 years in our perception because they're thinking and moving so quickly. Maybe they still cram that all into the short time they live. And what about the creatures that live literally for one day? There are some creatures that are born at sunrise and die by sunset and they have to grow up, have babies and die by the end of the day. Oh, my God. That's so unfair. No, that's a lot of time pressure. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Live a life in a day. We've got Lockie. Right, well, thank you. Thanks, yeah. Zach. We've got Lockie on the Northern Beaches. Lockie, what's your question? Uh, good morning, doctors. I was just wondering, so I'm doing an astronomy unit in university and we briefly mentioned the importance of binary pulsars mm-hmm. i was just wondering how can they form because i would have assumed the supernova that formed them would have completely annihilated the other star system so how can you have two okay so let's just sort of back up here the first thing to realize is is that stars behave like living objects. They are born, they coalesce from a star cloud, from a stellar nursery, they form into a star, and then they gradually burn up their nuclear fuel, and at one stage they run out of nuclear fuel, and depending on how big they are at that stage, they will either just expand, in the case of our sun, it will expand to be, say, the size of the orbit of Venus or the Earth, and then shrink down to the size of the Earth, So they will shrink down to something called a white dwarf, the size of the Earth, 100 times smaller than it originally started. But if it starts off about five times heavier, when the nuclear fires go out, it shrinks down because the gravity is so strong past the size of the Earth, 20, uh, uh, say, 14,000 kilometres, down to a neutron star, say, 20 kilometres across. Mm-hmm. So to form a supernova, so to form a neutron star, can you help me on this, Lockie? Does it have to go through the supernova stage to form a neutron star? So that's the question. That was that was my understanding. Yeah. Okay. So if you okay, so what I'm guessing is that if you got two of these around each other, you would expect one of them to blow the other one away. I'm guessing that you can have star collisions. And we're running out of time, and I think what you need to do is look up the field called Galactic Archaeology, and Professor Joss Hawthorne at the University of Sydney is an expert, so read his stuff, take it from there. We have to run now. Sorry, Lockie. Sorry, Lockie. Sorry. We're just leaving you. Bye. 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 I love you to pieces. Sorry, got to run. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. If you want to potentially get your question on the air, you've got to be listening to Triple J Thursdays, 11am, or feel free to send me a voice memo on Instagram with your question for Dr. Carl. Hit me up, at Lucy Smith. That's my name. This episode was produced by Lou Hill. We'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. 
Each day, we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.